0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: So how many people here have actually had a um, explainer video that they made viewed by Christy Teigen and John Legend?
2: Who are they? Me. <laughs> Amanda, you rock.
1: Amanda Sloat. this has happened to you.
2: It has, just this week. It was my mic drop moment. In fact, I'm going to take the rest of the year off.
1: Very nice. <laughs> I think it, you've earned it. Did you make this specifically for John Legend and Chrissy Teigen?
2: I wish I could take credit for that. Uh, Chrissy Teigen was, was musing about wanting to understand British politics and Brookings. As or, one does. Uh, yes. Ben, <laughs> yes. Chrissy
1: Teigen is a supermodel married to John Legend, who's a very famous singer. Continue, please. <laughs>
2: So, in response to her question, wanting to understand British politics, we sent her my Brexit explainer video, which she and her husband John Legend then watched, leading to John Legend to tweeting out, "Well played, Brookings."
1: Awesome. Maybe, maybe John Legend will run for prime minister.
2: So <laughs> somebody's got to do it.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security: The Syria Later Edition.
0: It's the Bad (laughs) Puns Division of Rational Security.
3: You know, and it's not even connected to the B-roll. There
1: often aren't. I know, but... Our our listeners understand you got to hang with it to see how it all connects. (laughs) It's like a Robert Altman film. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, no. How does it all connect? <laughs>
1: yeah, we're gonna get there. <laughs> News you... coming
2: at you fast today.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm gonna hat tip that title to uh, Dorian Taylor, who's a user, a listener, not a user. He's a user of national security. It is a an addiction. Who? Yeah, it is. Who tweeted at me and said that was a good idea, and I said, not bad. Not all bad. right. I'm. I'm
3: so I'm, thank you, I'm, Dorian Taylor. I'm pro Dorian Taylor. That is a terrible pun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and it's your fault. And uh, and thanks for listening. And thanks for listening.
1: <laughs> I hope We've made your day. That'll teach you to tweet us. <laughs> uh, I am Shane Harris, master of bad Puns. I'm here in the New Jungle Studio with my friends, Ben Witness, Tomorrow Coffin Witness, and our special guest, Amanda Sloat. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hey, hey Shane. Uh, Amanda is a senior fellow here, a Robert Bosch senior fellow in the Center on the United States and
0: Europe at Brookings. Does that mean you have a really nice dishwasher? Yeah.
2: A washer and dryer. Nice. Did that come with it? It did. It (laughs) did. Highly, highly recommend Bosch products to everyone. I
1: I do. I have a Bosch. I have a Bosch dishwasher. I love my Bosch dishwasher. Is
2: it silent?
1: It's so quiet that the first time we turned it on, we weren't sure it was working.
0: (laughs) That's a stereotype.
1: Yeah. Oh, I. Do you, have we met? <laughs> <laughs> I am all about it. Uh, on the podcast this week, the future of Brexit is, anyone's guess, a sealed subpoena and a courtroom smackdown, the latest on La Faire Russe. And the U.S. announces its withdrawing troops from Syria. Amanda's going to help us figure out many of these See, topics. We're so about. choose
2: your national disaster. Choose episode. your national exactly. There <laughs> you uh,
1: go. Before we start, a quick housekeeping note: we are going to be away next week, and we hope that everyone is uh, enjoying some time off for the holidays. We'll be back with you uh, on January second. So this I'm, is the last. episode But we of the year. will
3: be doing a special edition of the Lawfare podcast, which I just thought of just now. We're going to take listener questions. Uh, so I will be putting out the the Twitter hashtag for that and uh, and you can uh, satiate your missed rational security by tweeting questions or sending us uh, questions to answer on the offer. I, law fair I know
0: Matthew the is looking
1: thrilled in the corner. Right?
0: He's got his head in his hands. way <laughs> like, oh,
1: I just that's to go home. the <laughs> um, Let us start with Brexit, dear God. that's the way that's the way that's the way that's that you find a story that has kind of so flummoxed people that it's literally safe to say, I don't know what's going to happen. There was that viral video of the commentator in the UK when he was asked about what's going to happen with Brexit on a morning show, and he basically said, beats the hell out of me, uh, and that seemed to be perfectly fine. So, um, Amanda, I'm not going to ask you to make predictions here necessarily, uh, although feel free. I mean, it's a, it's a prediction-free zone on some of these things, but um, there's But no, this
0: is rational security, this is rational security so you, so you can no feel, feel free to make it up.
1: Um, but the one thing, a couple of questions I wanted to start with is, is one is – it's kind of taken as a given that the deal that Theresa May, the prime minister, negotiated with the EU and then presented to parliament is sort of the best and final offer about how the UK would go through Brexit and the, and the agreements that would then exist with the Europeans. I want to test that assumption. Is that right? Is this really the last possible deal that can be made? Or is there a chance for this to uh, – for the negotiations essentially to continue before you know, the UK just goes off a cliff?
2: The EU's current position as, is that this is the best deal and that they are not prepared to reopen negotiations. I think the concern on the part of the EU is, one, if you reopen negotiations on one issue, then the other 27 EU member states will want to reopen negotiations on their various pet projects. Uh, the second is, if you reopen negotiations, what is it that British Prime Minister Theresa May needs to actually deliver a parliamentary majority in support of her deal? Uh, and so far, she has not been able to articulate the same Single issue that that needs to be addressed, such that she suddenly will have majority support.
1: So she she she. What's the likelihood that she's going to try to give this a shot?
2: She tried that last week. Uh, she flew around a number of capitals. She went to The Hague, she went to Berlin, she went to Brussels. Uh, she then had to skip Dublin to go home and defend her leadership when they called a no-confidence motion uh, in the political party as as to whether or not she should remain party leader. Uh, so after beating off the opposition in her party, she headed to Brussels and had to sit down and meet with all EU 27 leaders, Said, look, guys, I've got a real problem back home in my parliament. You have to help me out. And they said, sorry, we're not going to renegotiate the deal. And it's not even clear what it is you want. But as a practical matter,
3: the deal is open until March, right? Because, Because the one thing that Europe could stand less than reopening this and negotiating something else would be a hard Brexit with no deal, right?
2: So the the deal still needs to be ratified by the British Parliament and by the European Parliament. So it is not done because nobody has actually ratified it, even though the EU leaders have signed off on it. But on your question of no deal, one of the things that's very striking this week is that the EU is starting to publish all of its preparations for a no deal scenario. And the UK is also coming out with this. So at least in terms of its public posture, Brussels is holding pretty firm on no further negotiations and preparing for a scenario where the UK crashes out with no deal.
3: But do you th- but do you think that's real or is that a bluff? I mean, if May could figure out what it is that she wants.
2: That's a big a big if that has not been met over the last 2 years. So I I think it is unfortunately a a decent possibility. I think it's a scenario that nobody wants, but it's one that everybody's preparing for and and the problem is there's not a clear way forward, because there's no majority for any form of deal in the UK. So two points, I guess. One is that the prospect
0: of a a so-called hard Brexit, an exit without a deal, is put forward as some kind of economic disaster for the UK. And I'm trying to understand why exactly it would be such a disaster, rather than a very difficult adjustment, but there might be something on the other side that everybody can handle. That's one thing. But the other thing is, you know, if we think back to how this happened, the Brexit referendum became a a sort of symbolic referendum on the sovereignty compromises inherent in the European project, right? And it became a manifestation of discomfort with that that existed, by the way, not just in the UK, but in a lot of other European countries. So if Brexit goes off smoothly, That presumably would make it more likely that other countries might try to pursue new kinds of arrangements with the EU, whereas if Brexit is a disaster for everybody, don't you think that could be a deterrent?
2: I two good questions. I think on your second one, most people would argue that Brexit has already been a sufficient disaster that it would be off-putting to any other country to try and replicate this. Uh, it's been very clear through these two years of painful negotiations that it's not an easy process to divorce the European Union. Uh, certainly, if there is a harder Brexit, it will be that much clearer that it is very painful to to leave. On your first question of of what it actually entails, the agreement that Theresa May and the Europeans negotiated in the middle of November includes several components. One, it includes uh, provisions for protecting the Northern Irish border. If there is no deal, there are no provisions to protect the Irish border. And essentially, you would need to have customs control on the border. Second, it includes the financial bill that the UK needs to pay to the EU. So the UK, being part of the EU, has agreed to a number of programs and expenditures as part of the current budget cycle. The EU, not surprisingly, wants the UK to pay off its debts before it leaves. If it leaves without a deal, it It's not obligated to pay that. Third, there's a lot of provisions to keep things going. If you sell a good and you put it on the market as Brexit is taking effect, you want it to continue going to where it needs to go. Uh, You want court cases to continue. So there's an 18 or 21-month transition period built into the withdrawal agreement during which everything essentially remains the same, gives citizens and businesses the opportunity to adjust. That would end. The withdrawal agreement includes provisions protecting the rights of EU citizens living in the UK, UK citizens living in the EU. If there is no deal, that no longer applies. And on the economic scenario, which is the one people are most concerned about, uh, the UK would return to tra- trading on WTO rules immediately. And so all of the tariffs, the beneficiary or the beneficial trade mechanisms, all All of that stuff ends. So there wouldn't be provisions respecting uh, British airlines being able to land in Europe. You would need to have customs and border checks on food, on medicine, on everything that would be transiting from the U.K. into Europe and vice versa. So, yes, you could certainly adjust over a period of time. But there would be extremely negative and significant consequences immediately. And so what everybody is coming out with now is contingency planning for how you would need to address all of that in the the short term.
1: One of the stories I remember most vividly after the vote a couple of years ago, maybe this is apocryphal, was that the most Googled search term in the UK, was what is Brexit, <laughs> and I think obviously what that speaks it was, to was what is
2: the European Union.
1: Oh, so, <laughs> well, there's there's that that's related. Um, that's but, even worse. Yeah, yeah. But there is like this. It seems that there is this sense, at least from an outside observer's point of uh, perspective, of buyer's remorse, at least, or or a, a a very painful kind of dawning education process for a lot of people who maybe didn't really know what the vote was about, or who frankly were just making a protest vote and never thought it would actually stick. So. Isn't there an argument, and, and is is it possible that you get sort of a second chance at this, a do over? What are the prospects for a second referendum to basically ask the British people, "Are you sure you want to do this?" No Hit one me, you, baby,
0: one more yeah. time. Are you
1: exactly <laughs> <laughs> the the Windows delete file thing? You know, are you sure you want to delete this deal with the European <laughs> Union?
2: It's a lot clippy. of people in clippy. the UK it's are clippy. are making that very case. Uh, on your first point about whether or not people knew what they were voting for, I'm sure a lot of people didn't. There's there's always a risk in in bringing these types of questions to to the general public. Uh, there have been accusations of Russian interference in the referendum campaign, similar to to accusations of of Russian interference in the American election. There was also a lot of misinformation and not sufficient information given to people about what this would actually entail. Uh, For example, people were told that the money the UK no longer had to send to the EU was money that could be spent on the British National Health Service instead. Uh, And people actually came out the day after the referendum and said that was not really the case. People weren't aware that funding that they were getting from the European Union to underdeveloped regions in the UK was no longer going to continue. And so certainly after having two years of... Uh, very painful uh, negotiations it has become quite clear to people what the the costs of this are going to be so there have been hundreds of thousands of people marching on the the streets of London and elsewhere in the UK uh, there have been referenda or petitions calling for a a second referendum uh, people calling for a people's vote on this now the problem is nobody is clear on what the question would be do you do a do-over of the initial brexit referendum and have people say yes no now that I know what I I know do i really want to to leave uh, and remember that only 51.9% of people voted for brexit in the first place a second option is, do you have a referendum on Theresa May's deal? Say, we as a country have already decided that we are leaving the EU, but Parliament does an impasse on ratifying Theresa May's deal, so we are going to ask you, the people, whether or not you want to leave on the terms of Theresa May's that deal. That just
1: seems insane, can I just say? Now, for <laughs> Theresa May,
2: she is arguing there is she has a democratic right to deliver, or a democratic obligation to deliver on what the people of, of Britain voted on. The third scenario is, do you have a multi question referendum, where you say to people, do you want to leave the EU? Yes or no. If yes, do you want to leave, according to Theresa May's deal, no deal or some other deal, which is also extremely complicated. Uh, Two other problems. One, Theresa May does not support a referendum. Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Opposition Party, does not support a referendum. He would rather have a general election where he would become prime minister and deliver a better deal. There are timing issues because Brexit is supposed to take effect on March 29th. Experts are saying it could take up to 22 weeks to organize a referendum, so you would need to get the EU to delay this process. If you do a 22-week scenario from now, that puts us in May. That's when the European Parliament is supposed to have elections. Do you have British people stand for election to the European Parliament when days later the people might confirm the EU's decision or the UK's decision to leave the the European Union? So theoretically, a, a second referendum sounds like a great idea, but there are a large number of logistical and timing challenges to doing that.
1: Does this make anyone think that too much democracy is a bad thing?
2: No, it does make me think that it, y- you gotta be really careful
0: how you word referenda. Um, and referendum questions, right? So you could have had a referendum that said, "Would you like the your British government to attempt to negotiate?" Yeah, da, da, right. Da, right.
1: Well, but the, the, I mean, but the political backdrop in which this all occurred would have been that would have been, this was so extreme, right? It was so rooted in.
2: I mean, you could have you nationalistic could have fervor, the, and you could have set the percentage higher than 51 percent. I mean, yeah, a simple there, majority yeah. on a decision <clears throat> like this, you could have let Brits yeah. living outside the UK vote. You
1: said like, unless we get we have a quorum but, of voters. But
2: hang on a second. There
3: was no good argument for having this referendum in the first place. Um if a party in Britain wanted to run against, you know, to make this the central issue to promise to remove Uh, the UK from the EU, it should run in Parliament and get a majority and try to do that. And there is, in fact, such a party. It's called UKIP. And it does not win substantial uh, numbers of seats. And it is a wing of the Conservative Party. And David Cameron made a colossal error by submitting this to a to a discrete vote, which is exactly what you have a parliament in order so that you don't have to do.
0: And In other uh, words, Ben is saying that it's, it's anti-democratic to have had this reference. No, I'm saying
3: it's too much direct democracy in a circumstance that involves a whole bunch of highly technical areas, economics that people don't understand. This is why, and trade relations and you know, and international organizations that people don't understand. This is why we have representative democracies in in countries like the United States and the UK. And it is a genuinely bad idea to submit the most complicated foreign domestic and regulatory policy conglomerations of issues to up or down votes by whimsical publics that may pass them by, say, 2%, which is what happened here. It was a terrible idea. And, you know, David Cameron is going to have to live the rest of his life, uh, knowing that he subjected the fate of uh, the UK to this process. And I hope he has a lot of time to think about it.
2: David Cameron was out last week sounding pretty relaxed about his decision. So he does not appear to be losing any sleep or or harboring great regrets over calling this this referendum. Uh, But I think you're right in some of the points that you raised apply to this question of a second referendum. Uh, It's somewhat weird to have a situation where Parliament can't ratify a deal. And so you go back to the people who elected these representatives to ask them whether or not they they back the deal. And there's no guarantee that people are going to actually have a better sense of what they're voting on. On or not vote for unrelated reasons than what they did in the first referendum. Right. And the,
3: the right answer is not to have a second referendum. It's for some party to run nationally saying we will revoke the Article 50 notification. And, you know, that could be Jeremy Corbyn. It won't be because he's trying to ride this this tiger, too. Uh, and the Lib Dems won't do that. Uh, or won't will do that they just won't prevail and so the result is that brexit's going to happen but I, i don't think that's a you know it's an excess not of democracy but an excess of the wrong type of democracy
0: well and i i think moreover it's a use of it's a use by elected representatives of direct democracy as a as a tool of their own political cowardice right i mean that's that's how this happened and that's how this is continuing to happen
1: Well, speaking of people who aren't going to be sleeping well at night, Mike Flynn thought he was going to have a Merry Christmas, knowing his prison sentence or lack thereof, and now we'll have to wait until March of next year.
0: Yeah, but he'll still be home for Christmas.
1: He will be home for
3: Christmas. In fact, he
0: can't go more than 50 miles from home (laughs) for Christmas. I actually
3: did not think anything could happen that could make me feel bad for Mike Flynn. Really? And yet Judge Emmett Sullivan
0: has... Hasn't He's quite... awakened the bomb of sympathy he, 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 in your breath. He has
3: not quite gotten me there, but he has made me think about, like, what it would take for
1: me to feel bad for
3: Mike well, Flynn. Just to re- what, just... what
2: exactly made – was the the public shaming or the fact that he was actually going to force him to do jail time?
1: We'll recap it, too, for Ben, for people well, who may have missed.
3: So Mike Flynn went into court yesterday with – uh, the government having moved that he uh you know having filed a brief saying he had cooperated extensively and constructively across a range of investigations a the government very good boy. the government recommended that he get no jail time he uh unlike certain other people we could name <laughs> george papadalos um you know had actually not been a bad boy he'd not like um you know, pled and then secretly talked to every reporter in the country about...
1: um, Although his son and his brother were tweeting like...
0: Yeah. uh,
3: True, but he actually just cooperated. That's true. You know, and like he did what you were supposed to do. And by the way, Papadopoulos and uh, Alex Van Der Swan, the awesomely named Alexander Van Der Swan, each got... You know, less than thirty days in 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 jail uh, for for the uh, you know equivalent offense. He goes into court and Judge Emmett Sullivan, who is a mercurial character, first of all makes him go through this allocution again, which I actually think that was reasonable under the circumstances. Um, but then proceeds to suggest that he was actually might be guilty of treason, which is a a trivial, a frivolous proposition. Uh, He goes on a tirade about how David Petraeus should not have been allowed to to plead to a misdemeanor. And he basically threatens to give him jail time unless he uh, agrees to a delay in his sentencing so that he can cooperate more even though the government has basically said he's kind of done all the cooperating that there is to do. Uh, And the judge kind of bullies him into this uh, additional period of cooperation despite there not being an investigation that really wants his additional cooperation. Uh, And so I actually, you know, Mike Flynn doesn't deserve a lot of people's sympathy, including mine, but I actually thought it was a, a really inappropriate display of judicial abusiveness. And I, uh, it bothered me a lot.
1: All right. Counterpoint. Mike Flynn, <clears throat> I presume, against the advice of his good attorneys, in his sentencing memo to the judge, insisted on putting in this-
0: Making a dumbass argument. Oblique,
1: tangential argument that he was somehow rail benching. You let me finish. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a Kanye reference. Yeah, I, that look, you know. He, okay. No, he, that, didn't that know. Did he did not know. I did not know. I barely that.
3: know who Kanye. I only know who Kanye is because he met with Trump and
1: <clears throat> got himself in that trouble. That must have been a surprise for you. Uh, <laughs> Insistent on putting in this 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 sort of half-hearted argument that he was somehow railroaded. Into lying to FBI agents, and we won't recite you know, chapter and verse what he said. But Judge Sullivan looked at this and said, "Hold on a second here. Are you or are you not pleading guilty to the crime of lying to the right. FBI? Because if you're not, you need to say that you're not. And if you are, and now before, even and before, prior to this sentencing." Uh, The judge was so concerned, shall we say, about this argument that Flynn was making. And by the way, relatives of Flynn and right-wing conspiracy theorists have been making for months that he was somehow tricked or entrapped into lying to the FBI. The judge said, fine, let's see the 302, the notes of the interview that these FBI agents did with Flynn in the White House. And I think they proved beyond any shadow of a doubt That the agents not only knew what Flynn had said to the Russian ambassador, but gave him ample opportunities to tell the truth about that, and Flynn lied repeatedly.
0: Okay, yes. Well, and can I just say, I do think it's a public service that the 302 came out and that that particular conservative info bubble. Was thoroughly, thoroughly smashed. Like that's that kind of transparency is important, I think, both for faith in the outcome of the judicial process and for an understanding of what actually happened. Okay, a few
3: things. Number one, I fully agree that it was appropriate of the judge, as I said before, to make him go through this allocution again and this colloquy again because of precisely that. It is not the case. That he did this. This was included in his memo over the advice of counsel. His counsel wrote that memo. Robert Kellner is an. To it, be
1: clear, I'm not. I'm, I'm speculating it was against the advice of counsel. Okay.
3: Robert Kellner is an excellent lawyer at Covington and Burling, and uh, I am sure that it is his name signed to that brief, not Michael Flynn's, and. A disaster like this in court has no parents, and I'm sure that uh, sources close to Flynn are uh, keen to blame the lawyers, and sources close to the lawyers might be keen to blame the clients. At the end, just say, d-
1: Mr. Kellner knows how to deal with difficult clients. <laughs>
3: At the end of the day. Uh, that brief is the work product of the law firm of Covington and Burling, True. not the work product of Michael Flynn. Much as
1: it might make it, uh, Judge Sullivan furious, <laughs> yes.
3: And so I don't know. I I don't know whether that's a lawyer thing or a client thing. At the end of the day, the lawyer put his name on it. Look, it is perfectly reasonable given the conspiracy theories and given the text of. of of the degree to which Flynn's lawyers wrote the conspiracy theories into that brief for Judge Sullivan to have said, I want to know, I want you to make very clear that you are taking responsibility for the conduct. And I don't have any problem with the lengthy colloquy he made Flynn go through. In fact, I think that will do a lot to uh, debunk conspiracy theories that have developed around it. But when you turn from that to then speculating in a grade school fashion uh, that the guy may be guilty of treason. Treason under the Constitution requires a state of war. There is no state of war between the United States and Russia. That was a silly comment. It was more than a silly comment. It was was very inappropriate. Can I ask,
0: though, does Sullivan have – the reference to Petraeus made me wonder whether – Sullivan has a military background or a national security background. Did he ever hold a clearance so that he feels particularly personally about people who hold clearances or working in national security who violate trust? So
3: I don't know the answer to that question. um, But Sullivan, I mean, as far as I know, he he was a law firm partner. I don't know what he did beyond that. But Sullivan didn't just raise the Petraeus issue, he raised it twice. He he said, I disagree with the the Petraeus Allowing him to plead, and then he he acknowledged sort of a few sentences later. But what do I know? I don't really know the details of that case. Maybe I shouldn't be talking about it. And then he was fired up. And then a few pages in transcript later, he does the same thing again. Having said I don't know anything about this case, maybe I don't know the details. He raises it again. I really disagree with that.
0: The <laughs> he, guy he wishes Petraeus were standing in the dock in front of him instead of Michael Flynn. I mean, the,
3: the guy way. was just out of control, and so I I am not. Uh, an apologist for Mike Flynn at all, as you of all people know. Um, But I do think when somebody has gone through a process of entering into a cooperation agreement with the government, taking responsibility for his conduct, pleading guilty, and working his way through the cooperation and comes to sentencing, that is not a time for a judge to have a temper tantrum and sort of Refuse the process of of bringing a case like this to an end,
2: so is it clear what Flynn needs to do, and is jail a certainty?
3: No and no. Um, the judge's posture was, uh, if you
2: uh, come f- back and see me in a few
3: months if you force me <laughs> to go to sentencing right now, I'll probably give you jail time. you do you want to maybe cooperate a little bit more for a few more months? Uh, We can put it off and then maybe I'll be in a better mood. That was basically what he said.
0: So does this deter others from cooperating with Mueller because they may have a sense that he can't actually deliver on a lenient sentencing process?
3: Uh, I think it will deter others from wanting to be in front of Judge Sullivan, Uh, you know, (laughs) look, at the end of the day, a cooperation agreement is an agreement between you and a prosecutor about what they will recommend to the judge. It does not bind the judge. And you get a, a, a judge who's in a bad mood, or a judge who's just not very good judge, or a judge who's really offended by your conduct, and the prosecutor's recommendation may not matter all that much.
1: Okay, so let's briefly also touch on the other big development in Lafayette Russe this week. Uh, So there has been a secret – well, I shouldn't say secret. There's a sealed grand jury subpoena that we're pretty sure pertains (laughs) – We're pretty sure uh, is sought in the Mueller investigation. Um, For those who haven't been following this, just a real quick recap. Uh, A subpoena was issued. The recipient of that subpoena – Uh, Appear to have fought it. It went up to the um, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It went back down to the district court. It went back up to the D.C. Court of Appeals in a hearing last week in which the entire floor – and the courthouse was sealed off, people. cleared, yeah. evacuated of everybody except for the parties. Which so so that pesky reporters floating around to see who comes and goes from courtrooms to divine what's going on behind closed doors couldn't do that. Um, yesterday, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals issued a judgment upholding the lower court's order to enforce the subpoena, in which it was revealed another tantalizing bit of information, which is that the recipient is a company, some anonymous company owned by some anonymous foreign government. so company a owned by country A,
0: so it's not Roger Stone. It's
1: not Roger Stone. It's not the president. It's not a member of Congress. It's, it's not Jared. It's not Jared. Now, it may be related to some of those people. It could be Jared's bank it's records.
2: Colonel Mustard. Exactly.
1: <laughs> in
0: the drawing room with the candlestick.
1: But with the, with the That's so,
0: candlestick A.
1: We won't talk about this too long because the, the bottom line of it is we do not know what this entity is and what the nationality of the entity is, and you're not going to learn it from what's in the document. But, Ben, just kind of – I want to touch for just a moment on – I mean just speculate a little bit for us on the uh, – maybe not so much who this is for but the importance of this and is it that unusual for a subpoena to be handled like this in a sealed matter for this kind of – as, as uh, Scott and Quinta put on Lawfare recently, this ostentatious secrecy that is surrounding the whole proceedings. Can we divine anything from that and just kind of situate this uh, in, the, in the La Faire Russe, uh, if you will?
3: Well, so I- – you said it was almost certainly a Mueller matter and I think that's right. Um,
1: Politico, we don't know that for a certainty. We
3: don't know that for a certainty but Politico a few weeks ago in in breaking the story that this case existed uh, had some you know, sort of interactions in the clerk's office that strongly suggested that it was a Mueller matter. Moreover, the fact that the nature of the subpoena is to a foreign government-owned entity – uh, covered by the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and that there was the degree of ostentatious secrecy that there was about the case that involved literally clearing the fifth floor of the of the Barrett Prettyman Courthouse, which is not done often. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever known it to be done before. All is very consistent with it being a Mueller matter. Now, what is it? Um Here's what I think you can what you can say for sure. So the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is invoked here because the entity in question is a government owned entity that is operating in a marketplace. That is, it's engaged in some kind of commercial activity. So what does that lead you to think it could be? Well, how about, say, a Cypriot bank or a Russian bank or a Ukrainian state-owned entity, right? These are all the kind of things that in La Faire Russe, you wouldn't be surprised. Some of them have shown up before. For example, Alf, you know the big Alpha Bank story. Alpha Bank is privately owned, actually, but uh, is an example. right? If you were to learn that there were something like that that was state-owned that had somehow become an isu- at issue in one of the Mueller matters, that wouldn't surprise you at all. And so my working assumption is that we're dealing with either – a banking entity through which uh, some kind of money laundering may have taken place, or a business that is somehow involved in 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 some of these transactions. Beyond that, I don't. You know, it's not clear from the court papers what country it is, and it certainly isn't clear what entity it is. Uh I think everybody was a little surprised that it was an FSIA-covered company rather than, say, a senior White House official who was the subject of the subpoena. Uh, It does suggest that Mueller is looking at some commercial activity emanating out of Eastern Europe is the way I would.
0: What fun.
1: Right? It's my favorite story of the week, you guys. And there have been some really big stories, but I love the guessing game. It's <laughs> so
3: neat to not know, but kind of get clues. Yeah. Oh, it's really yeah. fun.
2: It's like reality TV. Who's going to win? So, do we ever find out? Yeah, we will find we'll out. Find How out. long do we have to wait? Oh,
3: we don't know. Um, I mean, you know, I think. I mean, I suppose it's possible that we could never find out if the grand jury investigation never yields anything. Uh, my guess is that the entity in question will out itself at some point.
1: Well, speaking of dreadful uncertainty.
0: <laughs> no, no. Now the uncertainty is at an end. Oh. All is clear
1: uh, The administra- The administration announced today that we are pulling all of our troops out of Syria. Uh, I guess there are about 4,000 believed to be roughly special forces in Syria. Not, not that
2: we know for sure. Not that
1: we know for sure, but they're there. The estimates
2: have been around 2,000 a while ago. But then they were increased. Yeah. So it's, yeah. A,
1: it's a small but significant number and the presence is significant, uh, I think, obviously. Uh, the president says, we've defeated ISIS in Syria, which is the only reason they I not one of these troops there in the first place. They're coming home. Um, Tammy, let's start with you on this. Um where did this come from? Uh, uh, I, I see. I was utterly yes, Tammy. surprised.
2: Where did this come
1: <laughs> from today? <laughs> Tammy, explain the president's decision making, please. Uh, were you surprised by this? And then and let's uh, let's start with that. Uh, and, and what are the immediate implications of the fact that there's going to be this now announced pullout?
0: So at one level, no, I'm not surprised at all, because President Trump has been expressing almost from the day he took office, his desire and his intent to remove American forces from Syria. Uh, In fact, he had announced his intention to pull them out more than once in the past. Uh, And he had announced the defeat of ISIS more than once in the past, only to have it walked back by other senior officials and ultimately to be sort of persuaded by them to stand down. I think what's more dramatic here is that apparently over the course of the summer, some of his advisors, including uh, the relatively recently appointed special envoy for Syria, Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, um, had persuaded the president to adopt a set of explicit policy objectives for keeping American troops in Syria indefinitely. That was announced in September. The three policy objectives were to ensure the ongoing defeat of ISIS, in other words, so they don't come back. Number two, to uh, reduce. Iranian influence in Syria, to use the American presence there as leverage to try and affect the attempted entrenchment of Iranian military and Iranian-sponsored militias in Syria. And then number three, the political goal of promoting a political transition in Syria, getting rid of Bashar al-Assad. Now, could 4,000 mostly special operators and trainers of Kurdish forces actually accomplish anything militarily on behalf? of these objectives? Not much. Um, But there's a symbolic presence there. And the fact that with the uh, Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic forces, these American troops and a few French troops and others control about a third of the territory, not very populated, but a third of Syria's territory, it did create a certain amount of leverage. Just on Monday, I was speaking at the Atlantic Council uh, at an event where the keynote was Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, the special envoy on Syria. And he once again articulated these three policy objectives, said that U.S. troops would stay there in order to do these three things. And then suddenly, today, The Wall Street Journal breaks the story that American troops on the ground have told their partners, we're out of here. And so that's what makes it a dramatic reversal. I think to a certain extent, the fact that it didn't happen before is just a reflection of the ability of advisors to momentarily persuade President Trump not to go where he always has wanted to go. You know, just like uh, Brian Hook was negotiating with the Europeans on trying to get amendments to the Iran nuclear deal to try and forestall an American withdrawal. And one day, President Trump woke up and pulled the rug out from under those talks. He's done the same thing here. He just pulled the rug out from all of his underlings trying to to work something and said, no, I'm done. We're gonna do what I always wanted to do anyway. So I think that there's there's a bureaucratic loser here, which is the those within the Trump administration who want a very tough policy on Iran. They really wanted to use this presence in syria against iran i'm not sure how they didn't have legal authority the presence wasn't very large but now they've lost that card um in the region i i i don't know and i'm really curious to hear amanda's thoughts on this i'm not sure how much difference it makes because i think that the kurds with whom we've been working on the ground the other regional actors saw american withdrawal from syria as somewhat inevitable am i wrong about that
2: well, in the last week or two, we've had Turkish President Erdogan threatening to launch military attacks against the Kurds in northeastern Syria, who, as you mentioned, the U.S. has been partnering with. Uh, President Trump and Erdogan spoke on the phone last week. There's been administration officials quoted today as saying this is when the whole U.S. withdrawal was finalized, whether or not that's that's true, that's part of the narrative, that's, that's being put forward. So there are questions now about how Turkey responds to this. Does Turkey go forward and and launch military attacks on the Kurds in Syria. We have seen Erdogan do this against Kurds in the northwestern part of the country. Those, of course, were backed by the Russians and not by us. The concern about him going after the Kurds in the northeast is that these were the guys that were our partners. Plus, you had American forces embedded on the ground with them.
0: But he's always seen them as uh, allied with the PKK, with this Kurdish terrorist group inside Turkey
2: which they are uh i think the us military was not as as It saw them as useful. It saw them as saw them as useful partners, and I think was was willing to see them as separate from the PKK that had been engaged in a long running struggle against the Turkish government. Uh, But this certainly has been a point of tension between the U.S. and Turkey, and it's also been a point of tension within the U.S. government because there has always been a clear difference between people focused on the counter ISIS campaign and the CENTCOM special forces who wanted to work with the YPG for this very reason. And people in the State Department and elsewhere that were concerned about the Syrian civil war, for example. So very unclear what happens now uh, with with the U.S. pulling out, having even less leverage on, on the ground there. Uh, concerns about what Turkey goes forward and does. Certainly, I think big winners of this are Russia and Iran. I would assume there's champagne corks popping in in both capitals tonight now that the U.S. is going to leave, which is one of the shared objectives between the two of them and the Assad regime. And just a clear close out on the the Kurdish point many now expect the YPG which has never formally cut its ties with the Assad regime is going to be hurrying to Damascus to try and nail down an agreement with them so that if the Turks do end up invading they have the backing of the Syrian regime since they will no longer have the implicit protection of US forces on the ground
0: so i mean this is something that i think we we have been anticipating and in fact i think you and i spoke about it a few months ago that the prospect of an eventual American withdrawal since the U.S. presence there was only counter ISIS officially before this new policy was announced, the Kurds were always assuming that one day the Americans would leave and they would have to cut their own deal with Damascus. And they've actually been back and forth to Damascus a couple of times for conversations. And for Assad as well, there are a lot of advantages to cutting a deal with the YPG because These aren't areas where he was able to exercise effective control even before the uprisings. And so this way he can sort of his mafia state can subcontract its rule to the Kurds in this area and it can get rents or, you know, the way mafia states do it can. Um, sustain, you know, control over the country without having to exercise it itself. But the Turks are the spoilers here, right? If the Turks see this as their opportunity to crush their historic enemy, the terrorist, you know, PKK slash YPG, then you could, in theory, have a Turkish Syrian war, right?
2: Sure. Or it puts Turkey up against the Russians, uh, and it also potentially puts Turkey up against the regime. Uh, I mean, it's worth remembering the U.S. under both the Obama administration and the Trump administration has never really had a clear Syria policy. We have had a counter ISIS strategy. The reason we went into Syria was not because we wanted to put an end to the Syrian civil war or deal with the humanitarian tragedy that was unfolding in Syria. We were very focused on on the Islamic State. Uh, it was interesting to see that the White House statement that came out today clarified that that we are looking at the defeat of the territorial caliphate of ISIS. And that seems to be the way they are trying to, to nuance this somewhat. Although it was also interesting that at the beginning of this week, Brett McGurk, who has long been heading the, the counter-ISIS coalition, uh, was quoted as saying in a, a briefing to journalists at the State Department that simply looking at the territorial defeat of the caliphate would not be sufficient justification for the United States to leave. So yet another uh, presidential advisor who was, was caught flat-footed by, by the decision coming out of the, the president now. Uh, lots of people also pointing out that there has been huge criticism of, of Obama for having pulled troops out of Iraq very quickly. Questions about whether or not this hasty withdrawal by the U.S. from, from Syria is going to end up leading to the return of, of the Islamic State or, or others at some point in the future. Uh, as well, for those of us who actually care about Syria, broader questions about what the implications of this are going to be for the, the peace process there.
3: My question is, how clear is it that this is real? And, um, you know, uh, Trump has a way of, you know, Changing saying something. his mind. Well, perhaps? sort of saying something and we all <laughs> jump at it. Usually it's, you know, it's uh, that he's going to fire Bob Mueller or Rod Rosenstein or something. And we all jump at it and and act like like the president saying something matters. And then we find out that sort of life goes on and and actually there isn't a direct relationship between presidential speech and action or policy or even policy direction. And so my question is, should we assume this is really happening?
2: I mean, the Defense Department today put out a statement in in typical fashion, trying to roll this back somewhat, uh, talking about continued focus on defeating the Islamic State, on a gradual drawdown of troops, of doing this in a more responsible way. So clearly, there's not support in the the Pentagon for going forward with this. At the same time, and this gets at what what Tammy was saying, I think we continue to believe that the adults in the room are going to keep Trump from acting on some of his worst instincts, and I think as he continues continues to show us he is ultimately the decider. So you could also make the case that his advisors would have been better placed over the last six to 12 months, actually developing a gradual drawdown plan that gets the United States out, rather than, as as Tammy was saying, articulating some of these objectives, which are fine on the face of them, but it was never clear how a limited U.S. troop presence was going to achieve them, and it was also completely counter to what the president's own stated objective was.
0: I, I think there's also another, a broader implication of the troop withdrawal if it goes forward, which is that... It's not only American military forces that are present in Syria now. We also have American civilians, who, including um, USAID personnel and State Department personnel, who are in, working with local populations on governance and stabilization, and reopening schools and things like that. And. Trump had cut the U.S. government funding for those programs a couple months ago, but other funding had come in, including, weirdly, Saudi money, a hundred million dollar check from the Saudi Arabian government to the U.S. government to pay for these U.S. programs. It's one of the strangest things I've seen in years in foreign assistance. But there you are. And so if the U.S. soldiers are not there, the other, the U.S. civilian personnel will not be able to be there either.
2: And in fact, there were press reports today that State Department personnel were being evacuated within the next 24 hours.
0: Yeah. Which means that all of that stabilization work will disappear, which means that it's much, much easier for ISIS to come back in. It's much take over towns and villages. It's much easier for the Kurds to impose whatever kind of autocratic control they want to so on.
2: But it's actually consistent with Trump's own policy, right? He never wanted to be spending American taxpayer money on reconstruction and stabilization anyway. So if the Turks want to go in and sort it out and the Saudis have all this cash laying around and Russia made it its problem, fair play to to everybody else and and let them have at it. Yeah, he'll call it a win. Yeah, and announce
1: um, the troops are coming home right before Christmas.
0: Right. And and then the next president will get to send them back.
1: Right. All right. Let's go on to uh, object lessons. Ben, I'm looking at yours. I've been looking at it the whole time. So it is so adorable. I don't know. I need it to go. Go so, ahead. <laughs> so
0: uh, our
3: awesome intern, Anushka Limaye, who just uh, finished up her time at Lawfare, uh, gave us a parting gift, and it was a plant for the Jungle Studio, uh, except that Anushka uh does not have great confidence in our plant caretaking abilities. I'm and not so, sure
0: why she would feel that way. And
3: so she uh, crocheted a set of cactuses and succulents, because uh, she's from Texas. And so she thought we should have uh, sort of desert cactuses uh crocheted for the jungle studio so that we can't fail to water them and kill them. Uh, And so uh, we now have in the middle of the table in the jungle studio, a crocheted uh, group of of,
0: of (laughs) plants. First, may I say, as someone who has done quite a bit of knitting and crocheting myself, that's really impressive. It is. Um, But secondly, there seems to be this trend among the younger set, if I may say that, (laughs) of crocheting and knitting, not sweaters or shawls, but objects for display like this uh, set of succulents. That's that's because
3: they know that. You can't have an object lesson that isn't an object. So, okay. if
0: granted, you you may remember Shane that I posted uh, for Joe to see actually a knitted skeleton on yes, my Facebook page. Indeed, indeed, it was way cool.
1: Ben, I have faith in you. I think you'll probably find a way to destroy this too. <laughs> I'll
0: get to work on it. <laughs> I want an entire studio filled with these things. It would also help with sound absorption. It
1: really would. It's actually quite soft and sound absorbing. Cuddly cactus. It's cuddly cactus. It's not prickly at all. Um, Tomorrow, what's your object?
0: Okay, well, my object is something that um, is a little bit of log rolling, but I have to say it's also something I'm weirdly proud of. Maybe not weirdly. I've been in this business for low 20 or so years And uh, as a a foreign policy wonk, that is. And up until this month, I had never yet published an article in Foreign Affairs, the premier foreign policy journal. And I do have an article in Foreign Affairs this month. It came out last week. It's co-authored with the amazing, fantastic, super smart Mara Carlin. So you have in this article a deputy assistant secretary of defense and a deputy assistant secretary of state co-authoring a piece called America's Middle East Purgatory, The Case for Doing Less. I will say, as a Middle East specialist, this was an article that was a discomforting to write, arguing for doing less in the Middle East. But uh, I, I think it is probably the right answer for the United States right now, given where we are, given where the region is, given where America's traditional regional partners are. What I hope is that it'll spark some argument. And uh, and so I hope you'll all read it. And as a special Easter egg for Rational Security listeners, I will post on our show page an unpaywalled link to Ooh, the article. Ooh, very nice! Just because I love you guys so very much. Nice. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas!
1: Um, my object this week is uh, an article in Clickhole. Um,
0: <laughs> of course, <laughs> best
3: publication. Best on the
1: publication web. ever. It's like it's like it's like BuzzFeed of the Onion, right? And this article, I'll read the headline, I'll read a couple of paragraphs. This is my life on any given day of the week. Legal bombshell. Mueller flipped Trump's confidant's lawyer's friend's associate, Gorpman, who could easily testify against Bleemer, and it's not even lunchtime.
0: Oh, Jesus.
1: (laughs) It starts, the day's just getting started, and the Trump house of cards is already crumbling. This morning, special counsel Robert Mueller dropped a legal bombshell on the administration by filing court documents announcing a plea bargain with Trump's confidant's lawyer's friend's associate Gorpman. And Gorpman's testimony could spell major trouble for Bleemer, which must be terrifying for Trump.
0: This to is av- complete bullshit, right? To avoid Total jail
1: time, issue. Gortman is ready to spill his secrets about Bleemer's secrets, which is a huge breakthrough in the Russian investigation. <laughs> The best part is that it's not even noon, so we can still expect more shocking twists from Mueller today. Just think of what would happen if Gortman gives up Bleemer. Among Trump's business partners, co-conspirators, Inner Circle, perhaps nobody was closer to Bleemer than Gortman, not even Roscoe. Calderino called Gortman the king of the keys. And remember, Calderino was called the key master by Roscoe, who Gortman praised as Trump's personal key ring. I mean, it just goes on.
0: So this is like Mueller Mad Libs?
1: Basically, yeah. I mean, no one has a first name. There's no first reference. It's just it, it is it is it is a prime example of the frenzied the, the, minutia, the frenzied minutia that we sometimes get into where everything is a bombshell and there are about 87 characters because this is a goddamn Russian novel. And every one of them is, you know, holds the smoking gun. I think there's even a part here with the smoking gun pointed at the smoking gun pointed <laughs> at the smoking
0: gun. You know what? When you write your memoir of La Férouse, yeah. you should call it the Russian novel.
1: The Russian novel. That's not a bad idea. I'm just gonna call it Gorpman. <laughs> Gorpman. The,
0: the, the, the Zuckerman account. The oh
1: my account. god! Hats off, Clickol. That was that was sweet. Uh, not so sweet. We're at the end of the
0: podcast. The last podcast
1: of 2018, you guys. Boo, boo, boo! But we're gonna be back with you in 2019.
3: You know Yay.
0: what? 2019 just has to be better than this.
3: Well. Hey, 2018 was good. I'm pro 2018.
0: What, it what good is 2017 was, was good, bad. It was good for a of here, maybe. 2017
3: was really bad. 2018 was the was the year the tide turned, and we started pushing back and winning a few.
1: It was good for the podcast.
0: It was yeah. good for the podcast, and we love you guys so much. Yeah, and we're so grateful to you, and we hope you don't miss us too much next week. Yeah.
1: You're not, you wouldn't be listening to a podcast over Christmas anyway. Nah. Or maybe Who you would if that? you're trapped with your family. But in the meantime, Rational Security is, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare website. You can follow us on Twitter at RATLSecurity. Look at me. <laughs> he's, looking, he's like the little kid expecting get punched in the shoulder. <laughs> You can find us on <laughs>
3: – I couldn't even go to Israel and get away with it. I know.
1: I'm glad <laughs> you listened to that. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. And keep sending your tweets. Maybe we'll turn your tweet into a title of a show. Thanks again to Dorian Taylor for that. Um, our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by me. And my new Russian parody band, Crimes of Punishment.
0: Oh! <laughs> yeah! All right, that's your memoir. Enjoy
1: that for your 2018 send-off. <laughs> 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 I'm going to go home and listen to Sophia Yan.
0: Yeah, that's your punishment. That's your sentence.
1: Uh, on behalf of my good friends, uh, Ben Wittis, Tamar and Wittis, and our special guest, Amanda Sloat, thank you for being here. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in 2019. Merry Christmas.
2: woo